Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. We are, of course, here to know God and make him known that we want to have a a growing, intimate, personal relationship with God and then to go out and to share that possibility with all the world around us. And so that's why we uh, get deep into God's word, why we study whole books of the Bible and, and look at the whole Christian life. So Today and next Sunday will be the last two Sundays of the the letter of Paul to the church in Colossae. I know last Sunday I told you I had one more Sunday, and then I started studying four verses and realized that that was going to be about an hour and a half sermon, and I needed to break it up. So uh, you're welcome. We've got one more week of Colossians next week, and then we'll wrap it up. But uh, today, we're just going to review a little bit and remember, uh, this whole letter has been written to help us live in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Son, through Christ Jesus, recognizing that we are set apart, taken from the kingdom of darkness placed in the kingdom of light, that we have an eternal king, Christ Jesus, who has established a pathway to citizenship that is built on faith in him as Lord and Savior and him alone, that it should change who we are and our life in the kingdom should be different expecting that we will suffer for the kingdom from time to time. We had a discussion in Sunday school this morning. You know, it's not fair if we don't get to say what we want to say and believe what we want to believe when, when we know we're right and biblical. And that's a political view, actually. God's word has said we will be persecuted, that we will be hated because they hated Jesus first. And so it's important for us to understand that the kingdom grows And sometimes we will suffer for it. That we have an an unending and unmeasurable, immeasurable uh, treasure in Christ Jesus. And he's all that we need. And we should be living lives that are rightly focused, putting off those characteristics that are not Christ-like and putting on the characters and qualities that are Christ-like and that our, our faith should influence who we are at home and also outside the home in all circumstances. Then we got a, a couple of greetings and got to see uh, the, the gospel at work in a few lives. And then here as we get to the last few verses of this letter, we're getting a personal bit of last words from the Apostle Paul to this church, inspired by the Holy Spirit and useful for us to apply to our lives as well. So let's look at that together. Colossians chapter four, verses 15 through 18. And we're gonna read this and you're gonna go, wait a minute, why would this be two sermons? And then I'm gonna show you over the next two weeks. So Colossians chapter four, verses 15 through 18. You of course can find it in the Bible app as well, where it's laid out for you as well as the notes. So here we go. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her home. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord, so that you can accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So we see these last words of the Apostle Paul in this letter to the church 
in Colossae, and he's just wrapping up with some personal greetings and some instruction as well as some encouragement for an individual. And then that last verse, verse 18, this is the way that the Apostle Paul wrapped up a number of his letters. And why is it significant? Well, if you look at verse 18, it says, I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, that he would have been at this last moment in these last few words, writing the last little bit of the letter personally. Up until now, the friend of his, Timothy, one of his followers, someone he had been training up in the ministry, had likely been writing this letter as Paul dictated it. But before we get to this very end and this final signature, we get through a couple of of other things. Number one, uh, verse 15 here, it says, a greeting. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a, a church that was in the Lycus Valley, like the church of Colossae, and uh, it would have been just down the road a few miles from the church that had received this letter. So Paul wants the churches in two different cities to greet one another, to show affection and concern for another. And then he says this, uh, give his greetings to Nympha and the church in her home. Now we might go, what? Why has somebody got a church in their home? Well, it's important to remember here in the early stages of Christianity and the life of, of the church that the gathering occurred not in dedicated buildings with lights and sound and, and volunteers, but instead at people's homes. And usually there would be a singular wealthy individual who would have the church meet at their home. Now, a lot of us are probably thinking, um, meeting in my house, wow, that, that'd be a big deal because I'd have to like keep the living room in order, right? Well, it, this likely would not have been meeting in the living room, but houses in this day, especially a home of a wealthy person, uh, would have had courtyards and larger meeting spaces and areas to gather for themselves and their extended family. So Nympha was likely a, a fairly well-to-do person who hosted the church in her own home because there was space for it. Not because uh, she had anything extra special or wonderful as a home, but it was big enough to host the whole church, the whole gathering. And and so we see this intimacy in the church. We see this this push to love one another, this this push to to greet one another. And so it's why being together is so important. You know, COVID did us a dirty in in those, those months that we were separated, those months where all you got was me on a screen. I'm so sorry. Because I know that I am likely the least exciting part of being here on a Sunday morning. Jeff, you weren't supposed to nod your head. But, um, oh, no. But, but, but the, really, one another, the greetings that we get, the love that we have for one another, the, the, the fact that we get to be in relationship, this is the most important part of being the church. And the Apostle Paul recognizes this here at the very end, sending his greetings, encouraging brothers and sisters to greet one another. Now, I, I, I want to tell you, it's, it's important for you all to, to try and break out of your shells to try and practice coming in and saying hello and, and, and catching up with one another, to, to linger after the service and, and to greet one another, to genuinely care for each other, understanding that there would have been a day in the Christian life where we wouldn't have been in this, this building set apart, but instead we would have been in somebody's house and in a much more intimate setting. So let's reclaim some of that. Let's refine some of that and not be afraid to bust out of our shells and greet and love on one another. Because really, in all honesty, between God's word and other believers, there isn't much better than those two things in the Christian life. 
Now, the letter continues, verse 16, and, and Paul says this. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, we, we read this and might go, okay, this is just more business. Who cares, right? This just doesn't matter. Well, some things to understand about this is that the, both of these churches were in Asia Minor, right, in what is to Turkey today. And as we zoom in and look, they're in the, the Lycus River Valley. And um, there, are, there are other churches in this area. Many of the churches in this area, we would read in the, the letter of John uh, to the churches in Revelation. So the seven churches in Revelation, many of them are in this area. Uh, we've got Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae all mentioned in Scripture. And if you can see down there kind of to the center bottom of the right-hand side, you see Laodicea really big. Laodicea was more significant than Colossae, but both places had churches that had likely found their, their founding members uh, when Paul was preaching in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul was encouraging them to be in fellowship with one another, but he also says to the church in Colossae, hey, I also sent a letter over to Laodicea. So when you guys are done reading this letter, I want you to swip swap. I want you to take the time to, to read each other's letters, to, to check out each other's mail. And the reason this is, is because as, as letters were written to individual churches and, and people in the, the New Testament era, those letters, when they went out, they became the new standards of faith and practice in the Christian church. That over time, as these letters are circulated from one church to another, to another, to another, each church would have taken someone who could write, read and write well in their church, and they would have made a copy of the letter and then sent the original on to other local churches who would have done much the same thing. Had someone stand up in the gathering and read the letter aloud and then talk about it and discuss it and figure out how to apply what they had read. And then, then somebody would have copied it and then that original letter would have continued on to other local churches. So letters from one church were circulated to all the churches in the area. And as Christianity grows and increases, that these letters continue to make the rounds and they become the standards for faith and practice within the Christian community. And, and these apostolic letters, so letters that were written by apostles like Paul and John and Matthew and, and, and the, the, the Peter, that we have these letters, these epistles, letters written by an apostle. Did you know that? When you open your Bible and it says, the epistle of Paul to the church in Colossae. Epistle is just a letter written by an apostle. So say that like three times real fast and see if you can get through that tongue-tying. Epistle, letter by apostle, epistle, yeah. But, but they, they, they were very quickly understood to be inspired by the Holy Spirit and authoritative for life and practice. So as these letters continue to make their rounds in the early church, they become the New Testament. Now, they were written early. They were, they were very clearly written by people with spiritual authority. But over time, they are bundled together. They're, they're gathered together and become what we call our New Testament. And, and what's interesting is each of these letters, regardless of to whom it was written, became for everyone. 
Now, when, when we read, and you can open up your Bible and, and you can see that, that when Paul writes here to, to this church, the letter is addressed to the church in Colossae. We see in, in other letters, it is sent, they're sent to specific churches. Uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, who is it written for? Anybody know? Theophilus. Theophilus, God lover. Theophilus, Luke wrote his, uh, his, his gospel and the, the book of Acts, both of them, for Theophilus. And, and we don't look at these books and these letters and go, oh, that, that's not for me because that one's for Theophilus. The, the whole gospel of Luke, I shouldn't read that because that's for Theophilus. No, we understand that every one of these letters, and this is how it developed over the year, early years of church life, every one of these letters, every one of these gospels, regardless of whomever it was written for originally, becomes applicable to each and every one of us. And so there is no part of any letter or any of these, these gospels or any of the Bible, actually, that we are excluded from. We, we like to think that maybe, maybe the culture in the, the church in Ephesus made it necessary for the apostle Paul to write to Timothy some certain things about church leadership. That's what people like to think, but the truth is, is it has nothing to do with the culture of Ephesus or the circumstances of their day. Paul wrote that letter knowing it would be circulated, knowing that the Holy Spirit had inspired it and believing that what he was writing was universal truth for every church and every believer everywhere for all time. And so as we watch the church uh, grab a hold of the letters that are written to it and circulate them and, and then compile them into the New Testament, we end up with the second part of our Bible. Now, we live in a culture, though, that tells us that this book, this, this beautiful, wonderful book, I, I have the greatest job in the whole world, the greatest vocation that there ever was. I get to study God's word. And share it with you for a living. I can't tell you how exciting that is for me. Now, you guys maybe wonder, why does he preach so long on a Sunday? Let me tell you why. Because there's so much good stuff. I don't know when to stop. It's like if we were at a buffet and I was a chef, I would keep feeding you until you popped. And that's, that's some, some weeks, that's, that's how I feel with God's word. I just, I feel like I have to cut you off before we've even gotten to the good part. And, and understand that this is a, a beautiful, wonderful, God-inspired, life-changing book. And our culture, though, tells us it's just myth. It's falsehoods. It was written for a different people at a different time. And, you know, we can only grab one or two things out of this book. Things like, well, you know, God is love. Because that sounds good to me and I like that. I mean, I forget the, the, the other things that it teaches me about God's holiness, about his wrath, about his justice, because I really like his love. Because, you know, this book, it's for another time. It's a, a, for another culture. But that's not what this book says about itself. That's not what scripture says about itself. It says to us, if you're going to receive any of it, that we have to receive all of it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the apostle Paul is writing to a young pastor, Timothy, the same one who had helped him write the letter to the church in Colossae. He was Paul's secretary, but eventually Timothy goes out and he's pastoring a church on his own, the church we believe in Ephesus, just down the road from Colossae. 
And Paul writes this to Timothy, this young pastor who likely was struggling with how do I stand up for it? How do I teach? What do I know what to teach? And this is what Paul says to him. He says, all scripture is inspired by God. Now we read that phrase and maybe we think inspired by God. You know, I was inspired to write a love song when I was in high school. She was so pretty or he was so handsome. I was inspired to write a poem or inspired to draw a picture. And this is not the kind of inspiration we're talking about. We're not talking about a warm fuzzy. What this this verse really says, that the word inspired, how we translate it, is better translated, God breathed. And some of your translations, as you open them up and read them, they might say that. All scripture is God breathed. And the only other place we really see God breathing into something is is in in Genesis chapter 2, when God gets down in the dirt and he forms man from the dust of the earth. And we see God breathing into man life. And so if we take this picture of God breathed, it gives life, it gives it meaning, it gives it power and depth and purpose. All scripture is God breathed. The Bible has been given life by God. It is a unique book. It is not just about God in some sort of way that, that, you know, people felt really spiritual one day. And so they wrote a song or they wrote a book or they wrote a letter. But instead, it is given life by God himself. Every word, every thought, every recorded act in here has been shared with us for some purpose or another. All scripture, it's God-breathed, inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. uh, So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The implication is that those who do not apply God's word to their life will be incomplete and ill-equipped as a Christian. And so we see that, that scripture has this view of itself. Now you might say, well, that was just the apostle Paul writing that. And to be honest, we have to understand the history. When Paul wrote this, he was not thinking that what I'm writing is scripture. He was instead looking back to the Old Testament and saying that the whole Old Testament is useful for us as Christians. And so Paul is telling Timothy, teach the Old Testament Because it will help you understand the Christian life. Now we go, see, that that means the New Testament doesn't count. Well, how many of you guys like Peter? Here's Maybe you come from a Catholic background. Here he is, the first pope of the church, right? And Peter writes this. Peter says this in his second letter. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. We see Peter calling Paul's writings and letters scripture. They're on par with scripture. And so all of a sudden we have this understanding that the early church apostles, the leaders, they saw certain things that they wrote as being inspired by God for the whole church and on par with Scripture, the Old Testament. 
And then as, as time passes, we see that it develops and the church begins to say, not only do we have the Old Testament and the letters of the apostles, now we know that the letters of the apostles are scripture themselves. And we put them on the same pedestal, the same level as the Old Testament, and we use them to grow spiritually, to mature in our faith, to understand more about who we are to be in Christ. Now, others of you, you spend too much time on the internet and you say, yeah, but I, I saw this video on TikTok where this guy says that nobody knew what the scripture was until the church sat down and voted on it sometime in the fifth century. And then a bunch of old guys in robes told us what we're supposed to believe. So let's look. How did we come to have the Bible? How did we come to have these letters? These very letters like this one to the church in Colossae that the early church passed around and celebrated as authoritative and truthful. How did we come to have this? And this is called the development of the canon. If you're from Canonsburg, this is where the canon came from. No, no, not really. Um, uh, the canon is a, is a Latin word that means rule or standard. And so when we talk about the canon, we're talking about the rule or standard of faith, which is the Bible. And, and it, it was something that has developed. What's interesting about the Bible is unlike the Koran or the Book of Mormon, things that we would discount as being lies made up by man, the Bible did not just drop out of the sky Thus saith the Lord, pre-written, you know, 1611 KJV with bookmarks and everything. That the Bible did not just happen, but it develops over time. It is something that takes years and years to, to, to blossom and become what it is. Let's, let's look first at the Old Testament. The first author in the Old Testament, uh, apart from maybe whomever wrote Job, since we don't really know who wrote Job or where it falls in the timeline, but the first author that we know for sure of in the Old Testament is Moses. And anybody know what Moses wrote in the Old Testament? First five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The only thing that Moses probably didn't write in Deuteronomy was the account of his own death and burial. Uh, gets a little hard once you're dead. Somebody else, Joshua likely, finished up Deuteronomy. And, and Moses wrote those books in 1446 BC. And you might go, well, how did Moses know? Well, because God inspired him to write the creation account. But also there would have been an oral tradition, an oral history that came through the, the monotheistic religion that, that Moses learned and grabbed a hold of and was revealed, had revealed to him by God. And so we see that, that Moses writes the first five books of the Bible in 1446 BC. And the Old Testament continues to develop over the next thousand years or so. The last book of the New Testament, the, the, the one that is most recent written, was it the, the letter of, or the prophecy of Malachi, uh, written in 460 BC. So in Malachi was, was the last one to write. And, and over the course of time, all of the writings were compiled and, and pulled together and, and shuffled together into different sections of 
writing and, 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 and thought. We have the law, the, 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 the first five books of the Bible that really contain the heart of the law. We have all the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, and then we have the writings. We have Song of Solomon and Psalms and Proverbs. And, and these three together become the divisions in the Old Testament that the Jewish people saw. And, and by the second century BC, all of these letters and books and, and, and recordings and songbook and, and, and prophecies had been pulled together and were recognized by the Jewish people as Holy Scripture, as authoritative for spiritual life and practice. And it's the very same books that you and I have in our Old Testament. So the Old Testament, it, it took about a thousand years for it to all be written and get pulled together, but it is set in stone, if you will, in about the second century BC. And if, if you were wondering, well, you know, how do we know that, that it was authoritative? How do we know that, that someone, maybe even like Jesus, saw it as being the very word of God? And Jesus quotes the Old Testament over and over and over again. And you know when he's quoting the Old Testament, you can look for it. You see it when he says something like, as it is written. And, and he's not referring to like, you know, the inside of the locker at the junior high where he grew up. He's talking about the Old Testament, the scrolls that he grew up with, that we would even say he, by the power of his own spirit, inspired now, if you still have question, in AD 90, the Jewish people got together again and said, yep, these are our scriptures. This is it. Now, what we have is, is scrolls. Uh, you know, scrolls, uh, uh, they're, they were compiled over years and years. But then for the, the scriptures to survive, they have to be hand copied over and over and over again. And so, yes, we have copies of copies of copies of copies but we know they are authentic in what they teach when it comes to the Old Testament uh, because we have copies that happen uh, about a thousand years after Jesus lives. But then we found these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody familiar with those? You, you maybe are, you maybe are. That's okay. You've heard of them, but don't know what it's about. One day in the 1940s, a kid was out playing in the desert, found a cave. Inside the cave, there were jars. Inside the jars, there were scrolls. Written on the scrolls were all the scriptures of the Old Testament. And those scrolls were from a community that existed about 150 years before Jesus walked the earth. So we have copies of copies of copies from a thousand years after Jesus. And then all of a sudden we find some older copies from before Jesus' time. Guess what we find out about the copies of copies of copies that we have and the really old copies from before Jesus? They're exactly the same. There's no distinction between them. So we can look at our, our scriptures and go, God by his power, God by his providence, God by his desire to preserve his word for us, has seen to, to, to make it that the copies of the copies of the copies have been faithful all these years. And so the Old Testament that we read today, though it would have been in a different language for Jesus, is the exact same Old Testament that our Savior Jesus would have read. The exact same Old Testament that Paul says is Scripture and God-breathed. And so we can be confident 
In the Old Testament, Jesus, in, in fact, speaking of the Old Testament, says this to the Sadducees in Matthew 22. Jesus talking to them about the Old Testament says, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. In John 5, 39, he says this to religious leaders, you pour over the Old Testament, the scriptures, because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. The thing that Jesus says is, you've had these scriptures for all of these years, and the truth of all of them is that they, they're talking about me the whole time. So we can go, if the very same Bible that Jesus taught from in his hand, in his synagogue, is the same as what we have, then we can go back, and if we want to see Jesus, he's in the Old Testament today still. We can see him all over the place. Now, you might wonder, how do I see Jesus in a story about? And then you can just name any story from the Old Testament. I've been rereading through the Bible again this year. The Old Testament is so hard to get through. I don't care who begat whom. I don't care who killed who. I don't care about chariots and shields. I just, it's like, just give me more Jesus. But then you spend time and you realize that in every Old Testament story, there is some truth there that points you to either the need for Jesus or the glory of God that would be revealed in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament is beautiful and rich and all of it teaches us about Jesus. And it is trustworthy. It has existed in its present form, its current teachings for thousands of years. And what we read today as the Old Testament is the very same scripture that Jesus would have read and taught from and that Paul declared was inspired or God breathed. Now, what about the New Testament? This is where we get really hung up, isn't it? Because a lot of people like to say, well, you know, Jesus, he taught certain things, but then Paul came along and taught other things that were wrong and, and you know, untruths. And, and so we, we, we really struggle sometimes with, with some of these teachers who get on TikTok and, and get on Facebook and, 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 and stuff, and, and they're trying to tell us, you can't trust anything but the red letters in your Bible. And even those are suspect. If you want to get down to it, let's just believe that Jesus is love and we're all good and going to see each other, you know, in heaven someday. What, what, what they're doing is they are, they are taking and they are making bad arguments to negate the majority of the New Testament so they can live according to their own desires. So let's look at the truth. The truth is, is that the New Testament, like the Old Testament, was written over a number of years. When we look at, at the dates and when we believe the, the letters and the books of the New Testament were written, the first one to be written was likely 1 Thessalonians written about AD 50. Now, some of you who are more astute and paying attention, when we make the change from BC to AD, this is just like a little pet peeve of mine, and I mess it up too, but it should be like 50 BC, but it's AD 50. Anybody know why? Well, 50 says before Christ, AD is Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, 50, after the advent of Christ, we, we, we see A.D., and it should be in the beginning, before the date, B.C. comes after. That's free. You can take that. Kids, take that. Remember that for your SATs. And uh, just, just, you know, be smart someday, trivial pursuit. First uh, Thessalonians, though, was written about A.D. 50. Revelation, written about A.D. 95. Revelation is the, old, or the newest of the New Testament books. First Thessalonians is the oldest. 
Now you notice 1 Thessalonians, uh, if Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected somewhere uh, between 24 and 26, then Thessalonians is written within about 25 years of his life, death, and resurrection. Revelation, written within about 70 years of his life, death, and resurrection. What do we know about the people who would have been alive during this time? Well, they were the very same people who would have seen and experienced the ministry of Jesus. And so they could have called out these letters, but instead of calling them out and declaring that they're untrue, the church accepted them, read them, used them, and eventually declares them to be scripture. And so we see that all of the books included in our New Testament, they're noted in letters or writings of church leaders by the late second century, the late 100s. So every book of the Bible that we use as authoritative in the New Testament was counted authoritative by church leaders by the end of the second century, the end of the 100s. And, and then over the course of time, that there was a, a council, and, and ultimately all of the New Testament as we possess it today, the 27 books of the New Testament, they were canonized or made the rule and the standard in the late 4th century. So AD 393 to 97. So they were used as scripture very early counted as scripture very early in the life of the church. But it wasn't until there started being many more false teachers who started trying to say, well, that book shouldn't be in there and that book shouldn't be in there and I don't like that one and let's get rid of that one that the church formalized the New Testament and said, these are the books of the New Testament. Now, some of you might go, yeah, but I remember there was this movie where they said there were lots of books that were rejected. Or I've got this person that I follow on social media that says that there were lots of other books of the Bible that they rejected because they, uh, they didn't like what they taught. Well, here's how they decided ultimately which books of the New Testament belonged in our Bible. The, the criteria for canonization, number one, it was apostolic. Either it was written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle. So you, you might go, okay, well, what about, what about Matthew, apostle? Mark, uh, written based on the recollections of Peter by his friend, Mark. Luke, friend of Paul's who traveled with him extensively and researched extensively, likely based on the recollections of Peter and the experiences of Paul. Acts, okay, Acts was Luke again. There you go. John, John was an apostle. All right, so now we get to other books. Well, what about Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians and Galatians? The Apostle Paul. And he was one who did not walk with Jesus in his initial ministry, but instead was trained by the resurrected Christ out in the desert. How cool is that? That you missed the boat the first time, but later on, God deems you worthy enough to see the resurrected Christ and to be taught personally by him. So, Every book in the New Testament was written either by an apostle or someone close to the apostles. James. Now, don't make me tell you who James is. Brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church. Jude, another brother of Jesus. Peter, first and second Peter. Duh. Right? First, second, and third John. John, again. So we, we see that all of the books in the New Testament are either written by an apostle or someone close to them. Orthodox. And what does it mean? Well, early in the church, there was an agreement about what Jesus' central teachings had been. 
The Apostle Paul records in some of his letters early hymns that the church was already singing about Jesus by the 50s and 60s. And so there was already a clear, this is what it means to be a Christian. And so if a letter comes along, a a, a book comes along, and it teaches something crazy, which is like the gospel of Thomas, which is a, a Gnostic gospel, which teaches this weird be a God kind of nonsense, that, that the church rejected those things. And then finally, the, the church, even by the 300s, by the 200s, by the late 100s, the church already had an accepted and used book of scripture. They just hadn't like, you know, canonized it yet. And so every book of the New Testament that's in our Bible was considered useful and accepted by the overall church the day that it was canonized. Why, why is this? Some of you guys are like, why isn't he preaching the Bible? Listen, I'm trying to, to help you stand up against some of the nonsense that we're seeing in our culture that calls this beautiful, wonderful word of God just an old, dusty book. And, and that you understand that the lies that you have been told through, through people on TV and on social media that, well, this was just a book made by men. Yes, it was written by men. It was inspired, though, and given life by God himself. And so we can see the history of it, and we can see how it's been faithful, and it's been trustworthy. And yes, it was ultimately approved by a, a, a group of, of bishops But it was rooted not in what they wanted, but in what the church, as a beautiful, breathing bride of Christ, living organization and organism, had already established to be their holy scriptures. So what do we do? What do we see about the Bible? What do we need to understand about it? Well, yes, it is, it is 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. If you grew up in Catholicism or some other faith traditions, you do have the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical book, canonical books. There's some extras. We don't count them as scripture, but we do believe that they're good history and they're nice spiritual books, kind of like Heinz Feet on High Places, if you've ever read that one, or, you know, uh, getting your daily bread. Yeah, that's nice. It's spiritual but it's not scripture. So 66 books of the Bible. Here's what's so amazing. Written by 40 different authors over the course of time. And how many years did it take for the Bible to develop? 1,500 years. 40 different authors over 1,500 years, but they all have one story, and that is Jesus written in three different continents, and and it also is written in three different languages. The three different languages that the original scriptures are written in are Hebrew, Aramaic, which is like street Hebrew for people who grew up in Babylon, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so we have these, these three different languages, and yet it has one single story about Jesus, about God's love for us, about his desire to redeem us. And we see all kinds of different literary forms and genres in the Bible. We see poetry, beautiful poetry like in Psalms. We see wisdom literature, little, little sayings like in Proverbs and other places. We see prose, and we see historical narrative We see just straight didactic teaching, all these different literary forms and genres, and yet all of it from page one to the very end 
is God's inspired and breathed word, and it's useful, and it teaches us Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. He is in every story. He is in every book. He is in every letter. He is in every poem. Jesus from beginning to end. And so while, yes, the, the Bible is wildly divergent and, and unique in, in its sourcing, it is singular in its message to us. And all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when it comes down to it, the Bible, as we read it, the revealed word of God, it provides everything we need for life and godliness. It's what it says of itself. If you're going to believe that this is, is God's holy word, then when you need something for life and godliness, when you need direction, when you need help and hope, you come to God's word. And you need to understand that the question of, is this a, a, just a culture? Is this just a bunch of old guys who wrote to try and oppress women and make life terrible for everybody and, and maintain their authority? No, this is not a cultural book in the sense of uh, we can discount the truths of it. Instead, what we find is that this text is rooted not in any given culture. It is above the culture. It is rooted in creation and God's design for us as people. And so when we read something that we culturally go, I don't like that. It's okay. You can not like it. It's still true. Because it's not rooted in our culture it's rooted in the way that God designed us. And so everything that is taught in here is given to us based upon how God made us to live together. And so it should be accepted and readily lived out. Here's, here's what we can see when it comes to, is it culture or is it always? And is it God's creation? Here's what Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. First Peter chapter one, verses 24 and 25, Peter says it similarly, but in speaking specifically about the prophecies of God received from those who wrote his holy scriptures, all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like a flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Brothers and sisters, this book, this text from beginning to end, nothing should be excised from it. Nothing should be removed. Nothing should be discounted. But we have been given God's word to, to be the one sure and stable thing in our life. And so when the apostle Paul at the end of the letter to the church in Colossae tells him to pass these letters around, it's because he understands the power of them. And he understands what God is doing through his word, he's providing everything we need for life and godliness. So it seems that I may have been able to have to do like three sermons then, uh, not just two. Because I still have like two sermons left on this one when I divided it in half. So we're going to blow through this real quick because this is the application for all of you and me too. When we're talking about the Bible, there are some things that we must do. Too often... Our Bibles, they come with us to church, they go home, and then they come with us to church, and then they go home, and then they come with us to church, and they go home, 
Anybody else grow up like that? Your Bible was just what you had to have right here so that everybody knew you loved Jesus and then you never touched it again, bless you. Uh, but, but I mean, that's where most of our Bibles live or they live in our app and we open them on Sunday morning and then we close them and then we open it on Sunday morning and then we close it and then we open it on Sunday. You get the picture, right? If God's word is God speaking to us, giving us everything we need for life and godliness, why are we letting it lie like that? Why are we ignoring it like that? And so the challenge I want to give to you, read God's word. You might go, well, I don't understand it. Get a better translation. If you have a King James Bible at home and you pick it up and you don't read and you don't understand it, let me give you one you can read and hopefully understand. Others of you, you love your King James, you get it, wonderful. I am not condemning a translation. What I'm saying is if you don't understand the translation that you have, let me help you find one you can understand. If you don't understand what you're reading, there are great study Bibles that help explain difficult passages. You read what it says, you go, that doesn't make any sense. You look down at the bottom of the page and you go, oh, I get it. Because they explain it right there for you. I've got those for you if you need a good study Bible. But read God's word. God's word does not work like this. You can't just sit it on your head. You might get better posture, but you will not become a better equipped Christian. You must read God's word. Psalm 119, verses 30 and 32. Psalm 119, beautiful psalm, whole thing about God's word. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set your ordinances before me. In other words, I'm looking at your word. I'm reading your word. I cling to your decrees, Lord. Do not put me to shame. I pursue the way of your commands, for you broaden my understanding. Read God's word. Psalm 119.97, how I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Psalm 119 says that God's word becomes what you think about all the time. The only way that you can think about God's word is if you read it. The only way you can know it is if you read it. Read God's word. Psalm 119.105, another motivation for reading God's word. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. James Montgomery, a voice, a, a pastor and theologian in the church said this, Bible study is the most essential ingredient in the believer's spiritual life because it is only in study of the Bible as, uh, as that is blessed by the Holy Spirit that Christians hear Christ and discover what it means to follow him. You can listen to me, like you can go back, listen to the back catalog of every sermon I've ever preached and it will not do you the same good as reading God's word on your own. And that's not to say that, that preaching is worthless or, or, or anything like that, but, but it is to say that really getting into God's word on your own is where you will grow as a believer. It is critical that you read God's word. Finally, or, or, or next, that you know God's word. This has one, been one of our memory verses, know God's word. Psalm 119, 11, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. To treasure God's word in your heart is to know it. Not to think, oh, I love the Bible, and then never open it, but to genuinely know God's word. Psalm 119, 33 and 34. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. 
God, let me understand your word. Teach it to me. Help me to, to know it. Jesus, John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, what does it mean to abide in the word? It means to live your everyday life in the word of God, making it part of who you are, you must know it. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 15, Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy and says, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. How do you correctly teach the word of truth? You have to know it. You have to read it. Every one of us should know it. We should, excuse me, should read it. We should know it. We should live God's word. John 14, 15, Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Oh, but Jesus, didn't you mean that if I love you, I'll go to church? Because that's easier. Didn't, didn't you? No, you've got to know and live scripture if you love God, if you love Jesus, if he is your king and your savior, you must know and live scripture. James 1.22, James writes this to us, the younger half-brother of Jesus, Do, uh, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You can read scripture, you can know scripture, you can listen to sermons all the time, but if you don't do what it says, you are deceiving yourself into thinking you are a godly person. You can listen all the time, but if you don't do, if I don't do, if we don't do, we're fooling ourselves. Finally, after reading the Bible and knowing the Bible and living the Bible, we are supposed to be proclaiming the Bible and his word. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Preach the word. Be ready all the time. How do you get ready all the time? You read God's word. You know God's word. You live God's word so that you're ready to proclaim God's word. The apostle Paul, as he's wrapping up this letter to the church in Colossae, he is, he is telling them just how important it is to read and understand and share scripture. The very letter I wrote to that church, I want you to read it and, and absorb it and take it into your life. And I want your letter to go to them. And I want everybody to take what's been written and live it out and to know it. And that's what we, we have here today. This is the springboard out of Colossians brings us to a place of knowing we have the word of God. Historically, we can look and go, this is God's word. The Bible is what it says it is. Now, you can still reject it by all means and call it something else. But don't pretend to be a Christian if you do. The Bible says this is the text upon which our whole life is to be built. Jesus himself says this is the truth. Study it, know it, live it. And if you're not willing to do that, don't pretend to be a Christian. This is what we have. And, and Paul is, is encouraging us and the Colossian church, read it, live it, do it. Ultimately, here's, here's where we're at. A right relationship with the word of God is critical to your life as a Christian disciple. What is a right relationship with the word of God? Read it, know it, live it, proclaim it. And it's critical to your life as a disciple. You can't 
Call yourself a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ and ignore his word. Second, or, or maybe the, the final application, what can you take this week to build up your relationship with the word of God? I've got an invitation for the guys. Ladies, I'm sorry, not you yet. There'll be a Bible study coming up for you. But guys, this coming Thursday night, 645, down this hallway, you are welcome to join us. We're going to be starting uh, a verse-by-verse, section-by-section study of 1 Peter. There have been four of us in the class for the last, when did it start? I don't know, when Jesus started the class. It's taken us forever to get through 1 John, but it's been good. We're starting 1 Peter this week. Every one of you men is invited. Do you have to attend every week? No, but all the weeks that you can. And we will read 1 Peter and we'll talk about it and we'll try and understand it and we'll try and figure out how to apply it and we will dig deeper into scripture. Others of you, maybe you're not ready for that. Open your Bible app and read the Bible verse of the day every day this week. Start a new reading calendar so you can get through the Bible in the next 12 months. Or maybe just read the whole New Testament in the next 90 days. Whatever you're doing, get more intimate with God's word. Read it, know it, live it, and begin to proclaim it. But you've got to start with reading it. If you are not reading your Bible on a regular basis, you are missing out on what is the most important part of your discipleship. And if you're having trouble understanding, come spend time with others so that you can learn and grow all the more. The Bible, as we look at the Bible, I encourage you this week and every week that is to come until you see Jesus face to face, read God's word, know God's word, live God's word, and proclaim God's word. Coming up in September, we'll be starting a new topical sermon series called How to Be a Christian. And some of you guys, you're like, oh yeah, I've been doing this for years. I don't need that. You need it. It will be a loving and gentle reminder about what it is that we should be living and doing faithfully in order to be representing our King, our Christ well. And so if you're struggling with living out scripture, this will be a great series for you. It'll be starting up mid-September. But until we get to that, until we get to this sermon series starting up in September, read your Bible, know your Bible, live your Bible, proclaim your Bible. Let's pray together as the worship team comes forward. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the word that you've given to us, that it is historically reliable, that it is connected intimately to your people, your teachings, your son, who is our savior, that every word in it is true and life and all of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Forgive us for treating your word as an afterthought or a duty, but help us instead to read it, to know it, to live it, and to proclaim it, and to fall in love with it. May we all invest enough time in our relationship with you that we would read this beautiful love letter that you've written to us. Yeah, it's thick. Yeah, it's a little hard to understand at spots. But it's you speaking to us. Help us to be so inspired in our love for you that we would read this love letter and get to know your word even more 
and in so doing know you better and know the ways that you have for us and know your son even better. Holy Spirit, convict us this morning if we have treated the word that you inspired as though it were nothing, but instead help us to grab a hold of it and make it part of our life. Grow us up. Help us to mature and use us to reach the world around us as we read your word, know your word, live your word, and proclaim your word. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. If this morning you need a Bible that you can read or you need a good study Bible and you don't have any other way to get your hands on one, check in with me. I can get resources into your hand. If you just need recommendations, ask. I'll show you where to order it off of Amazon. But get into God's word so that you too might grow. Let's stand and sing together.